Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Fathers, we open your word. We pray that you would open our eyes to see that empty tomb, to see what it means that Christ lives. Help us to understand by the power of your spirit. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. We've been following Matthew's gospel throughout this Holy Week, looking at the way that Matthew describes these events, because we've only just read from John's gospel. You can see that Matthew gives a more condensed account of the events that take place at the tomb, but a very interesting one, as you can see in this moment, that we are here to reflect on. Several years ago, our dear departed sister, Dory Gronendike, gave me some advice on preaching, the way people do sometimes when the preacher seems to be flailing a little bit and needs some guidance. Dory said, you know, Mark, what a lot of preachers will do is they'll organize their sermon in three points. And they'll make those points really clear so that people can follow them. At the beginning of the sermon, they'll actually tell people what the three points are going to be. And then at the end of the sermon, they'll remind them what the three things were. And uh, you might want to try something like that. (laughs) Well, you know, I haven't always followed that advice. I didn't necessarily take it to heart fully, but this morning I intend to do that. In fact, I intend to do that, and I think go one better. Inspired by these words that you see in your order of worship by Cyril of Alexandria. Cyril was an early church father. He lived from roughly the the middle of the 300s, the middle of the 400s, a rough contemporary of Augustine and Jerome. When he writes about this passage, he says the angel became an evangelist and herald of the resurrection to the women. And I'm struck by how true that is. That in these succinct words, the angel really does share an evangel, a gospel, a profound one despite its simplicity. In fact, In Matthew's gospel, this is the very first preaching of the gospel after the resurrection. The first time after the resurrection, somebody preaches Christ. It's an angel from heaven who does it. And he does it in these words, which are helpfully divided for us into three distinct points. He is not here. For he has risen, as he said. That's the sermon. That's the outline. If you want to follow along, you can write one, two, three 
over those phrases and you'll have the outline. The beautiful thing about this sermon, though, preached by the angel, is that it doesn't stop there. He doesn't just give three points. He actually concludes with a call to action. He says to the women, come see the place where he lay. And then he says, then go quickly and tell that he is risen. So he gives us something to do as well. This sermon from heaven that was preached on the first resurrection day is a good sermon for us to hear again on this resurrection day. And so we're going to contemplate the words of the angel. One, two, three. First, he is not here. He is not here. What does it mean? What is the significance of the angel's announcement that the tomb where they laid the body of Jesus is now empty? The stone rolled away. As one commentator notes, the reason that the stone is rolled away is not so that Jesus can get out, but so that people can see in and recognize that he has gone. It's more than just a simple acknowledgement that the tomb is empty. The emptiness of the tomb means something. Heralds the greatest news ever announced to sinful humanity. To borrow again from Cyril, this is an announcement of the death of death. Cyril says, The angel became an evangelist and herald of the resurrection to the women. Do not seek, he says, the one who always lives, who in his own nature is life. Among the dead, he is not here, that is, dead and in the tomb, but he has been raised. He has become a way of ascent to immortality, not only for himself, but also for us. For this reason, he made himself nothing and put on our likeness, that by the grace of God, just as the blessed Paul says, he might taste death on behalf of all. And so, he has become the death of death. Now, when Cyril alludes to Paul and quotes him there, he's quoting, interestingly, from the epistle to the Hebrews, which he certainly believes was written by Paul. It's Hebrews 2, verse 9. Author of Hebrews writes, But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor, because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Now, because we have been following through Matthew's gospel, the recurring theme throughout this Holy Week has been kingship. We've asked ourselves why it was important that a king entered in triumph to Jerusalem, why it was important that a king was crucified on the cross, and now why it matters that the resurrection is the victory of a king. And Hebrews answers this question. It says, because of the suffering of death, Jesus is now crowned with glory and honor. That kingly crowning marks what you might think of as a transfer of power. There's been a regime change as a result of the resurrection. We find in Romans 5 that from the day of Adam's sin... Until this day, death reigned. But on this day, the day of the resurrection, 
That changed. Because on the day of the resurrection, and from that day forward, Christ reigns. For if, Paul writes in Romans 5.17, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Critics of Christianity often wonder why it is that we're so obsessed with sin. Why are we so obsessed with sin? But this is a misunderstanding of Christianity. Christianity is not obsessed with sin. Christianity is opposed to death. Opposed to death. Death, suffering, pain, loss... All of these are consequences of sin, and Christianity doesn't resign itself to them. It doesn't make peace with them as the way of the world. Because these are consequences of sin, because these are the things that happen when sin reigns, when sin is king, this is the world that we live in, we fight back against the reign of sin. We oppose it. We stand against it, which means we stand against death. And we long to see death defeated. In Isaiah 26, the prophet Isaiah actually prophesies the death of death, actually looks forward to the event prophetically of the cross. But what's interesting is, in that prophecy in Isaiah 25, the way that the scene is pictured is not an execution. The way that it's pictured is a feast. In Isaiah 25, verses 6 through 9, we read, On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined, He will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of His people He will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for Him that He might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. As you can hear in the prophecy, death is described as a covering that's cast over all peoples. It's a veil that is spread over all nations. There's nothing in all creation that hasn't been infected and compromised and condemned and brought under the bondage of sin leading to death. But Isaiah sees a feast that is to come where death itself is on the menu, where death itself will be swallowed up. (laughs) That feast is the cross where the Lord Jesus gives his body and his blood, as he says, for the life of the world. And at the cross, Paul declares, death is swallowed up in victory. When we come to the communion table, We feast because of what Christ did at the cross. He swallowed up death 
at the cross so that we might come and swallow life in him. That's the great victory that he's won. That's the victory that his resurrection attests to. Because the empty tomb means that the reign of sin and death is done. That's what Cyril means when he says that Christ in his death and resurrection has become the death of death. As the author of Hebrews puts it in Hebrews 2.14, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. Jesus himself in Revelation 1 speaks of himself in these terms. He says, fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and hell. Pause for a moment and consider what Christ's victory over death really means. What does it mean that the tomb was empty, that Christ was victorious? Because we still see death all around us. We still see suffering and pain and loss all around us. And it's natural for us to wonder if God is who He says He is. Why does He allow these evils to occur? Why doesn't He do something? And in the history of Christian philosophy, many people have attempted to answer that very question. Why does God permit this? Why doesn't God intervene? The technical term for those kinds of theories is theodicy. Oftentimes, the answer to that question is something like this. God has the power to intervene, but he doesn't intervene because of free will, because he wants human beings to be free, and if he were to intervene, he would violate that freedom. So he permits evil so that freedom might exist, which is one of those things that sounds great to a philosopher, but not so great if you're actually suffering. I know plenty of people, myself included, who would prefer less pain, even if it meant less freedom. But you should never think this way. And you should certainly never answer this way when people ask you, why doesn't God do anything? Why doesn't God intervene? Please never say it's because of free will or because of anything else. When people say, why doesn't God do anything? Why doesn't God intervene? Answer, Jesus is how God intervenes. God isn't sitting back and doing nothing. He's doing everything that is necessary. And he is the only one who is able to do it. Only Jesus can do something about evil and suffering and death because they all flow from sin and there's no answer to sin without sacrifice. Only God has the power. But for the sins of humanity, a human being must answer. So God took on flesh and dwelled among us in the incarnation and offered himself as a sacrifice to atone for our sin in the crucifixion. And the resurrection, the empty tomb, that just means it worked. That just means he was victorious. He won over death. It's Easter. We're celebrating. But please don't misunderstand We don't celebrate the resurrection because we're happy for Jesus that he's not dead. We don't celebrate the resurrection because we're happy that because he rose, we too will rise. It's even bigger than that. We celebrate the resurrection because Jesus proved that he is now king over death itself. 
that he has defeated the greatest enemy of humanity so that all creation might be free indeed. This is not some religious holiday any more than VE Day at the end of World War II was was just a national holiday to celebrate victory. I mean, that was a day of euphoria. That was a day of deliverance. When they finally knew that the Nazis had been defeated, sailors were kissing nurses in the streets and people were celebrating with a joy because it meant the victory was real. That's the kind of day this is times a million. The reason we celebrate on this day is because the resurrection means that death has lost. That's the first point the angel makes. He is not here. But then he says, for he has risen. The reason that he's not here is that he has risen, pointing to the meaning of the resurrection. If the empty tomb proclaims the death of death, then the resurrection itself announces the triumph of life. Life has overcome death because, as Cyril says, Jesus in his own nature is life. Paul puts it this way. He says, Jesus has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Then he says in 1 Corinthians 15, in Christ shall all be made alive. Now you see a picture of this in our own coming to faith. When a person who is dead in their sins is made alive in Jesus Christ, we see this movement from death to life being pictured. Paul writes about it in Ephesians 2. He says, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So spiritual life speaks to this resurrection, this power of life in Christ. But it's not just a spiritual thing being talked about. It's also a physical thing. It speaks to physical life. In other words, life after death. Like Jesus, who died and then was raised to life, those of us whose faith is in Christ will die and be raised to life. Like Jesus, who was raised in the flesh, in a glorified body, admittedly, but a body nevertheless, those of us whose faith is in Christ will be raised bodily. That's not just the triumph of life over death. It's also the vindication of God's good creation. It is the redemption of the flesh. It's God's way of saying that what I made is good and I refuse To let it be taken from me, I will remake it. I will make all things new. Justin Martyr, one of the earliest Christian apologists who lived roughly from A.D. 100 to 165, actually writes about this in a, 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 a work of his that we have only in fragments on the resurrection. The way that the resurrection speaks to the goodness of the body and the goodness of the world. You have this quote in your order of worship. I'm not going to read all of it, 
But to paraphrase, he says, basically, people who think that the body is bad, people who think that the physical world is bad, must just be ignorant of the whole work of God. They just don't understand what it is that God has done. He says, both the genesis and the formation of man at the first and why things in the world were made. He says, it is evident that man made in the image of God was of flesh. Is it not then absurd to say that the flesh made by God in his own image is contemptible and worth nothing? But that flesh is with God a precious possession is manifest first from its being formed by him, if at least the image is valuable to the former and artist, and besides, its value can be gathered from the creation of the rest of the world. For that on account of which the rest is made is the most precious of all to the maker." Now, if Jesus was raised in the flesh, and we too are raised bodily, then the physical world and the human body are clearly good. When the ravages of sin and death are rolled back, the goodness of what God has made will be manifest. It'll be obvious. So the resurrection encourages us to value what God has made, to have hope in its renewal, and not to despair. The resurrection is antithetical to resignation. If the resurrection is true, then here are two pious beliefs that it should deliver you from. It should deliver you from the belief that death is a part of life and that acceptance of death is wisdom. It should deliver you from the belief that the spirit is pure and to be spiritual instead of physical is the highest good. Now, life is the antithesis of death, and the right response to death is to fight tooth and nail, to see it as an abomination, to reject it and all its hangers-on, suffering and pain, injustice, the whole lot. If you're a believer, then the only death to rejoice in, the only death to make peace with, is the death of death itself. The death of sin, the mortification of sin, is the only death that we welcome. And wherever we find life in this world, we should cherish it and we should nurture it because God is the giver of life. And remember this too. Christians are not otherworldly. There's nothing in Christianity that desires to escape this world or to evade reality. Our hope is not to escape reality. The other world that we long for is this world, Remade by God, restored to what it was meant to be. This world made right is the other world that we're waiting on. The new creation is not an escape from reality. The new creation is the restoration of reality. And that's what we long for. The angel's final point is interesting, brief. As he said... It sounds a little bit like, uh, and I told you so, because in this moment, the uh, followers of Jesus are rushing to the tomb to administer burial rites because he had to be put into the grave quickly. They couldn't do everything that was meant to be done. And they've actually come to the grave to sort of finish the job of burial, which is a little surprising from the angel's point of view. Because it's not as if Jesus made a secret of what they would find when they got there. 
The pivot point, as we've said before, in Matthew's gospel is in Matthew 16. It's the moment where Peter confesses that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is the Christ. He says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. It takes us 16 chapters to get to that moment, but once we're there, everything changes. And the focus from chapter 17 forward is not on this question of who Jesus is, but on the question of what Jesus now must do. And Jesus begins to teach his disciples about the necessity of his crucifixion and resurrection. Three times after this, Jesus says clearly what's going to take place. In Matthew 16, 21, we read from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. In the following chapter, Matthew 17, in verses 22 and 23, we get it in Jesus' own words. As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. Then again, in Matthew 20, verses 18 and 19, See, Jesus says, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. And then again, in Matthew 26, he gives them a little reminder, but he doesn't include that phrase, raised in the last day. He's already given it to them three times already. So that it would be easy to think that what the angel is doing here is kind of rubbing it in. Kind of saying, you you guys do remember, right? That Jesus said this was going to happen. What are you doing here acting as if you didn't think it would? But the angels, as he said, is more than just, and I told you so. Instead, what he's doing here is he's putting the death of death and the triumph of life into a certain context that we recognize as covenantal. He's saying that everything else that he's preached in his sermon has happened in the context of his covenant promise of salvation. It has all happened as he said it would. He said that he would do this, and he's done it. And if he's kept his word on this, then how could you ever again doubt him? How could you ever ask yourself if there's any promise that he won't keep? If the empty tomb proclaims the defeat of death and the resurrection proclaims the triumph of life, then the fulfillment of Jesus' promise is your assurance that his life will be your life too. If the cross was for you, then the resurrection is for you as well. As Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4.14, He who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. You might say that the angel's sermon answers three questions. Has Jesus won? Well, he's not here. So, yes, Jesus has won. What does this mean for us? Well, he's risen, and we too will be risen. So, it means life for us. And this last question, the briefest, perhaps the deepest, though, can I trust him? Can I trust him? Can I believe that all of this is actually for me? The angel says, he said it. It happened. So yes, you can believe it. You can trust him. These events happened 2,000 years ago. 
2,000 years is a long time. And when we think about the world to come, that feels like that's far off as well. And when things are far away, it's hard to believe that they're really for you. The more distant they are, the more unrelated to you they seem. And knowing that, God gives us glue. He gives us stickiness in the form of his promises, his covenant. The glue that sticks you to the cross is his promise. The covenant, it's a chain that keeps you tethered to the world to come. God binds himself to us through his promises so that we can be sure that we will receive what he's promised as he said. We're a lot like those women at the tomb. We have a lot in common with them. The angel acknowledges, I know you're seeking Jesus. I know you're seeking the one who's crucified, and so are we. We seek Jesus, but like the women, we often seek him where he isn't to be found. We often seek him while not actually trusting in what he said. We seek the living among the dead, but Jesus is not to be found there. We long for Jesus. We long for him, but at the same time, we struggle to believe in him. We look for him, but not in the place where he said that he could be found. So we're like them. And to them, and to people like us, the angel has a call to action. He says to them, Do not fear, for I know that you seek him. Come and see the place where he lay, and then go quickly and share. Three things. Do not fear. Come and see. Then go and share. To those of you who are seeking him and haven't found him yet, because you haven't found that empty tomb, because you haven't looked for him where he said he would be found, because you've looked for him not believing that the promises that he's made are actually for you, the angel doesn't condemn. The angel doesn't say, you idiot. The angel says, don't be afraid. Don't be fearful because I know that you seek him. I know. And then he invites you to come and see the place where he lay. Come and see that he is not there. Come and see that his tomb is empty and that his promises have been kept. And then he says to go quickly and to tell. That order is wonderful, I think. First comes comfort. Before anything else, comfort. Do not fear. Second comes finding. Come and see. The angel could have just sent them out and said, trust me, he's not there. Now go, go, tell everybody. But that's not what happens. The angel says, come take a look. Let me show you so that you can see with your own eyes, so that you can recognize that life has triumphed over death. And only then does he say, now go quickly and tell. First comfort, then finding, and only then sharing. Which makes sense, because you can't share what you've never found. But once you've found it, it makes sense not to keep it to yourself. Let Christ comfort you. 
Let him comfort you in your fears. Let him show you his grace. Don't be fearful. Instead, just look. Just go and see. But don't look for Jesus in the grave. Look for him on the move. There's nothing buried in the tomb of Jesus but death. Don't look for Jesus there. Look for him where he said he would be, doing the work that his father gave him to do. And when you find him, only when you find him, then go and share. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.